Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto. Today we welcome on activist, member of the Angola Three, and now author Albert Woodfox. His new book is entitled Solitary, My Story of Transformation and Hope. How's it going today, Albert? Well, I'm doing okay, you know. Yeah, that's good. I'm just trying to take all of this in stride, you know. My life is, consists of a lot of choices, yeah. first-time experiences. So being a published author is definitely a first-time experience, and the attention that the book is getting right now is kind of surprised me. Is it overwhelming? Yeah. I guess you, uh, surreal, I guess would be. The better answer? Better term, yeah. Okay, I, I get that. Um, what was the process of sitting down and kind of working on this? Um, I know you worked with, with uh, another person, Leslie, Leslie George. George. yeah. Did you kind of like start your own drafts and she kind of felt you revise it, or was it mostly coming from well, your it voice? it was strange, you know, for a long time, for about 20 years, I had a lot of notes. Yeah. Impressions of day-to-day activities and, you know, stuff that went on in my life. And I gave them to my brother, Michael, to take home. And unfortunately, he stopped all somewhere. And they vandalized his car. Uh-huh. All the papers, the stuff was in the trunk of his car. And he come back and the car was sitting on cinders. You know, so. But, you know, you know, I have a good memory, so... And then the, one of the reasons I asked Les to uh, help, I met Les in 98. I was uh, in the Amy City Jail uh, on my second reversal, actually third reversal, but, and she was a uh, producer for the uh, Democracy Now! And a, and a journalist. And, you know, she wanted to come down and, and, and interview me, and I told her, you know, I didn't know if it would be possible. Because of us, DOC had went out their way to make sure that me, Harmon, and and, and Robert uh, were never allowed to talk to the press. Yeah. And they let her, let her come now, you know. And so from there, you know, uh, she became a H3 supporter, even though at that time, you know, we hadn't formed the uh, International Coalition of uh, Support the, uh Angola Three, yeah. but she became a supporter. Of, you know, she, well, she was already involved in social struggle, but you know, she kind of like became interested in, in in what we were going through. So when t- it was time to write the book, I knew that she knew the history of Angola Three, yeah. and I knew that you know she was involved in a lot of the uh, different events that took place. That eventually led to international support and, and, and condemnation of uh, what we state of Louisiana was doing. Yeah, no, I think it, it's interesting, and you kind of have this opportunity here to a really hard opportunity, honestly, to put your life in context. And you start off by writing about your early years in New Orleans. Um, you were born here in 1947, right? Yes. In yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not sure where, yeah. you know, but I was basically raised in, in, in Treme. We still, we lived in my my dad's, our stepdad's. Uh, uh, he's from a small town in uh, Carolina, LaGrange, North Carolina. Yeah. And so we moved back to New Orleans and moved into Treme. And I was pretty much, well, it's kind of <laughs> hard to say I was raised, but I lived there for a while. Yeah. 
And you know, at a very young age, I was uh, arrested for armed robbery charge and sentenced to 50 years. So, you know, but I guess Tremé is home in a sense. Yeah, coming out, you've been almost out for three years now, and you get to see New Orleans in a very different light at this point. Um, what are kind of your, your thoughts on that, you know, have it being, being out and kind of experiencing it for now? Well, the city itself physically has changed so much since Katrina. Yeah. I mean, I still recognize the streets. But, you know, the scenery itself has, has changed. So many new buildings and new houses. And then, you know, some of the, some of the uh, trademark businesses that I recognize are no longer there and stuff. You know, 50 years is a very long time to be out of society and then to be in solitary yeah. uh, for 40, almost 45 years. My, you know, window to the world was basically a TV magazine, newspapers, in writing this book, you know, being in solitary for the longest point in history, it, it's got to be incredibly hard to try and get across what that feels like. How how did you put that into words so that people could understand it in a way? Just being honest, yeah. you know, just speaking to, to you know, I guess uh, as my mind just say, speaking to the heart. As I said, I, you know, you're never going gonna to forget that kind of experience. Yeah. It's strange because mentally and emotionally, I've been free a very long time. You know, my my body was confined to a nine by six cell. But, you know, I like to think in terms of, of raising my level of conscience through self-education and, and involvement in social struggle, you know, uh, and, and so it helped me to, to shape the man I am now, the human being I am now. So when I got out, Strangely, after being out about a month, the question I was asked the most, how, how have it changed? How have, you know, society changed? And sadly, you know, uh, I guess being in solitary, uh, it gives you a, uh, uh, it heightens your sense of, of awareness of what's going on around you and people and stuff. Yeah. And I come to the realization that nothing, there was no real change in America that the change, there was change, but it was all superficial. Yeah. It wasn't based in roots. And if you don't have roots, you can't grow. You can't expand. So, you know, everything had become coded. Uh, but the racism, the underlying racism was still there. And uh, that was, I don't know, shocking in a, in a sense. Because I had been removed from society for almost 50 years. Yeah. And to come back and see some of the same attitudes and the same practices and stuff, you know, which, as you know now, has been uh, uh, unleashed upon, the, uh, particularly on America, because of uh, the uh, white supremacist uh, beliefs that the president of the United States has expressed as being a part of and supporting. And so, you know, in a, in a strange sense, you know, I felt validated that my observations, my analysis of what was going on in America was was correct. Yeah. Um, kind of a, a dual-edged sword right there, right? You get yeah. verification and it's just, yeah. uh, it doesn't feel good. No, it, it's hard. I mean, what's going on in the country? You know, I spend a lot, of, you know, I watch tremendous amount of news. You yeah. know, I have to for what I'm trying to do, be aware of what's going on in the world. You know, not just in America, but around the world. So... You know, I was watching uh, 
the news this morning, you know, I still have a prison routine where, you know, most of what I get done, yeah. one starts around 1 o'clock, 1 a.m., and, you know, and this mass murder that just took place. In New Zealand? Know, yeah, in New Zealand, you know, and the, and the guy that did it, you know, saying, like, well, my my inspiration is Donald Trump, president of the United States. You know, that's that's profound yeah. statement there, you know. And to watch, you know, the I, I always refer to the news people and stuff as talking heads, you know. they. I don't think most of what they say come off a teleprompter or a piece of paper. They don't, it don't come from the heart. So I, you know, I just use that. It's my own little personal joke, you know, talking heads, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I got this saying about tomato, tomato juice. People have these arguments where, well, it's not tomatoes, it's tomato juice, and that's not the same. Yeah. But, in, you know, <laughs> tomato is a tomato, you know. Yeah. What, what farm or is saying at any particular time doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, and so you see a lot of that going on. And this is one, a lot of people blame the president for calling the face fake news, you know, but... He wouldn't be as successful with it if it wasn't in existence. Yeah, there's a superficiality to it, to the news reporting in in the world, not just America, but since I live in America, my my most immediate experience with it is, is yeah, you yeah. know, and to sit there and watch these men, these are supposed to be intelligent and and stuff, and to watch them try to rationalize and justify. Yeah you know, uh, this man and what he's doing and, you know, what he's unleashing upon society and the world. Yeah. To be quite frankly, it's disgusting, you know, because you, you these are the people we look to, you know, to... Lead us and um, yeah, and, you know. and educate us in certain ways, right? right? It, it, I was watching a video the other day about um, just modern political coverage being like... Most of it's not dealing with issues; it's dealing with framing or it's dealing with performance. So you never actually, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it's so disappointing to see that because we end up fighting about things that actually aren't real; they're superficial continually. Yeah. I know you talked about one way of coping with being in solitary was through educating yourself, through yeah. raising your consciousness, and participating in that. Um, how did you? come to really hone in on that and how did you make that like a consistent practice it wasn't learning english or math or although that was a part of it. the self-education was myself becoming aware raising my level of content yeah beginning to understand that my way i was at was not because i was a bad person it was called it was a, a premeditated uh systematic uh, systemic economic and political system yeah. that determined, I come from that generation where it was determined that one out of every four African-American males would be in prison. You know, so, you know, and and that's a part of what I mean when I say self-education raised my level of conscience. When I began to understand that I was not a bad person, you know, I was a victim you know, uh, 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 Robert King, the other member of the A3, has a, a saying, you know, if, if you're not a political prisoner, you're a political victim. Yeah. You know? And so, I, you know, once I began to understand, then that gave to me a sense of self-value. That gave to me a sense of dignity and pride that my mom had been instilling in me. Uh, true example, my mom was, was functionally illiterate, you know, which, you know, you you never know. 
uh, sitting in her company, you know. Uh, she might not could have read or, or write, but she was one of the most intelligent and and wise, uh, uh, you know, person to ever impact my life. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, you know, through self-educating, I'd become a member of the party. That helped a lot because I had a focus. Uh, Harmon and I established the only prison-recognized chapter of the Black Panther Party uh, back in the 70s in Angola. And, and as a result of that, when Brent Miller was found murdered, you know, we became the, the only suspects. Yeah. None of the physical evidence involved in this case were ever connected to us. Yeah. But that, you know, they had a they had a bloody fingerprint right now. And the state of Louisiana is not trying to determine who it's for. Yeah. And it was identif it's identifiable. What they did try to do in my trial in ninety eight is they put a an expert witness up there. She tried to change it into a partial palm print. Mm. And at the time I had state appointed lawyers who had a self-interest not not to defend me, and I virtually almost had to attack the lawyer to get him to say, well, did the partial palm print match Mr. Woodfox? Yeah. You know? And she said, well, I don't know. She mean, what you know? What you mean? You're an expert. You know, you you got all his fingerprints and all, everything on file. Yeah. You know, but so, you know, it was, it was that kind of experience I had to go through uh, at one time. Eventually, I, you know, got, you know, lawyers that was concerned with guilt or innocence. Yeah. And not just uh, due process. You know, we, we have a judicial system now that has been reduced. If you hang an innocent man, it don't matter as long as you hang him, you know, right. You use the right kind of rope and all that. Yeah. Know? So the, the basic foundation of the judicial system should be Guilt or innocence, and that's not that's not the case. You know, we know the our judicial system now functions on due process. They're no longer concerned with the guilt or innocence uh, of the individual that's uh, you know uh, brought before the courts now. Yeah, um, one thing I was really interested to talk to you about is there is a kind of mainstream focus on mass incarceration right now, and you are kind of both a a symbol of that, someone who's gone through that process at the very worst of it, uh, as well as someone who was working for that to be recognized by the mainstream public. What does that feel like for you to kind of be in that in-between space? You know, I, I, I guess that's part of what motivates me yeah. to continue to do what I'm doing, to realize that the, the judicial system, in America, and and the influence it 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 wells around the world has become about dollars and cents. Mm. You know, uh, rehabilitation is a word you don't even hear now. But when you talk about prisons and people that's being held in prison, you know, and uh, the product of a uh, prison industrial complex is bodies. So there's no incentive to rehabilitate. Guys who usually a great deal of uh, people in prison are economic situations. You know, the, the strongest sense thinking in a human being is to survive. Yeah. And if society don't create an avenue to survive within the laws or the Constitution or whatever you want to call, uh, then you're going to survive whatever way you can. Usually that's, you know, 
uh, by, you know, going against the laws or breaking the laws. Then when you put them in prison, at one time, you know, they used to think in terms, well, what kind of person are we going to turn back, return to society? And now the thinking is, well, he represents $50,000 a year or 44000 depending on what state. Yeah. You know, so the interest is not to rehabilitate you or to get you out. The interest is keep those those beds filled in, the, in these privately owned prisons and these programs that benefit, you know, and some of the major corporations are involved, you know, and one of the things Robin and I try to explain and raise the level of consciousness with American people is that slavery is still legal in this country, and people aren't, you know, not aware of that. You know, under the 13th Amendment, if you convicted of a felony, you become a slave of the state. Yeah. And if you're a slave, then you have no rights. You have no human rights, constitutional rights, statutory uh, uh, law, law uh, rights, you know, and you are totally at the mercy of the state. Yeah. So you have guys, and I, and we both, you know, I'm just, I'm just talking with a, a guy I met in, and uh, I used to come back from Tucson, Arizona. They had a book fair there. And uh, he's he's you know part of his local uh, labor uh, union, and I'm and so I'm asking him why y'all not more involved in this because for every prisoner that they paying twenty two cents an hour to produce products, that's a man or woman in society who can't get a job, who can't take. Cause, so this is a direct attack, in my opinion upon the working class people in this country. Yeah. So it is, you know, with the with the with the invent of uh, uh you know, private prisons, now it's beginning to become a threat to working of uh, people in this country. And and so we trying to make them aware of what's going on and and hopefully, you know, uh get support from from them for prison reform, real prison reform, you know, not yeah. You know, uh, better clothes and stuff. That you know, that's not prison reform. You know, prison reform is the programs that exist. The way uh, uh, the men, women, and children are, are treated while they're in prison. You know. Yeah, not not kind of superficial or dressing stuff. Yeah, um, new pair of boots, better working clothes, stuff. That's not prison reform, and not in my my opinion. You know. Yeah, and, and you you've seen that firsthand as well as. I guess what I find interesting is that these things that you've been talking about for a long period of time have entered the minds of a lot of people. You have academics writing about this. You have filmmakers making films based on these ideas that are reaching millions of people. Yeah. How does that feel for you? Do you feel hopeful that, do you feel like there's any sort of like a rising tide that could come from that, from that sort of focus? Yeah, well, I guess you could say I'm the eternal hope, Yeah. you know, because... I mean, when you when you being held in solitary confinement, you being confined to a nine by six cell, and there were sometimes when we were in smaller cells. But the fact is, no matter and when you're in a situation when you know this is what made us political prisoners, we were not being held in solitary because of our conduct. We're being held because of our political beliefs, mm. because uh, of you know activism within the prison against you know. Uh, racism, corruption, brutality, rape. These were the things that we were organizing against that were part of the prison culture. And so that, you know, elevated us to the level of uh, political prisoners. Yeah. And, I mean, well, the infamous warden, Burl Kane, he stated many times publicly that 
it didn't matter whether or not the Harmon and I and Robert were innocent. He did not want us in his prison preaching that, uh, preaching that pantherism, as he referred to it. Yeah. And so, you know, these are the type of things that, you know, I've had to deal with and confront for the better part of 50 years of my life. And we had yeah. offers to get out. Yeah. But the price was too big to pay. You know, we had to renounce the Black Panther Party and stop our political activities and organizing and, you know, stop trying to educate and raise the level of conscience of the men around us. You know, otherwise, just become institutionalized and be concerned with what's going on in the prison and what's not, or not what's, and what was going on in society. Yeah. Because that's something King and Harmony and I, the fact that we were all members of the Black Panther Party, the fact that we had had our level of content raised by the philosophy and the activities of the party, we, you know, of course, we never thought decades yeah. uh, in solitary, but, you know, we knew that if we were going to survive, then we had to turn to society and let what was going on in society shape our moral principles and values, code of conduct and stuff, yeah. rather than become institutionalized and turn inward, turn to the prison and let the prison culture shape the type of man we were. Yeah. And one of the, and you know, the fact that we had garnered respect from other prisoners, even prisoners who were not political, it forced us to re educate ourselves, it forced us to raise our level of conscience and stuff, because in all the to ask men to follow you or to have faith in what you're doing, you have to know what you're doing. And, you know, education is the most powerful weapon, yeah. you know, that exists in my, in my opinion in civilized society. Yeah, no, I could see. I think that that's so important. I know you talk about being offered, you know, ways out of this situation and kind of disavowing that because you'd have to go against things that you're working for, these beliefs, these means of helping other people surrounding you. Um, Three years ago, you took a plea deal in order to get out of, of prison. Yeah. Um, I know that must have been incredibly hard for you. I still have trouble with it. Yeah. You know, because for almost more than half my my life, I'd always preached to men to fight, yeah. to stand, you know. And uh, so it was very difficult. The case was so old, and it was bouncing back and forth in the court system. And the last ruling we had got from uh, Judge Brady was he, he granted what's called an exceptional writ, mm. which is almost unheard of. And he he ordered the state of Louisiana to, to, to overturn my conviction, ordered them to release me and forbid them from retrying me. And, of course, as the state always did, they pulled a file notice of appeal went to the Fifth Circuit, and while the Fifth Circuit overturned that part of the ruling, yeah. they let stand him granting me a new trial on uh, grand jury uh, discrimination and process used uh, for the grand jury for poisons. Yeah. And it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was upheld. So now we got this case that's 47 years old. We have, we have the uh, scientific technology in my opinion, which would have, without a doubt, freed us. All of a sudden, all everything is lost now. They can't find the clothing. They can't find the uh, coroner's uh, work. 
you know, and, and so you got this case just sitting there in limbo. They don't want to release me because they know they're facing one hell of a, a civil suit. Yeah. And for wrongful, wrongful conviction, wrongful incarceration, uh, you know, uh, prosecutorial misconduct, because the judge clearly states in his opinion that the state of Louisiana had used every underhanded uh, way they could to deny me justice for 40-something years. And and then, you know, the fact that, you know, I was 69 at the time. I pretty much, my daughter had grew up, had kids. I had I have grandkids and great-grandkids. And, you know, and the one thing, I think the deciding factor was me is a conversation I had with my brother Michael. And he said he was talking to my daughter one day, and she just broke down and started crying. And he, you know, asked her what was wrong. She said, I don't have a daddy, you know. And he said, well, yeah, you got a daddy. And I think, you know, the man that your dad has become, the things, you know, he's done, he's one of the most respected men in in, 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 in the country as far as a, a prison system goes. And that she said, no, that's not what I mean. She said, I don't know what it feel like to hug my dad. It'll be you know, my dad at home in his own. Yeah. I don't know what it feel like to say daddy and get a response, you know. And so, you know, that weighed real heavily. And so after about six months or more back and forth between my lawyers and, uh, you know, uh, I, I decided. And, and what you have to understand, the plea I took was called Nola Contender. I didn't plead guilty to killing Officer Miller. I pled guilty to the fact that the state had enough evidence to try me. Mm-hmm. Not that they would, you know, I would be found uh, uh, guilty again, but, you know, and so uh, even though it was a compromise, it, it's a compromise even to this day I still have problems with. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Um... Sadly, our our time is short. I could sit here and talk with you for a long time. There's a lot to dive into, and this book yeah. is really incredible, and I can't recommend it enough well, uh, to, to listeners. But uh, kind of to end off, in your time, um, what were some books that were meaningful for you in prison, as well as are there any writers that you're reading today or talking with today that you really appreciate? Well, the first book I read, I got out the prison library, was Franz Fernand, Rexford Delory. Yeah? Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, then, you know, as time went on, uh, you read one book, you learn about other authors, it piques your curiosity, what what these, this person had to say. So, you know, I read Mao Zedong, Ho Chi Minh, uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. You know, I read, uh, most people not aware, there's a African-American anthropologist named J.A. Rogers. Hmm. You know, he wrote, he wrote uh, 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 I think it was seven volumes of Race and Sex. Wow. Uh, from Superman to Man, you know. And the list goes on. But what I've recently read, besides my own book. Yeah, <laughs> several yeah, times over, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow. Yeah. You know, I thought this was a book that, you know, after a while, you, and, and, and I'm an avaricious reader. And so every day I'm going to get at least two hours. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, that's something I learned from prison, from the great revolutionary George Jackson. You know, he said that, you know, he read on a, on the average two hours a day minimum. So I try to get at least two hours a day reading it. And so, um, 
You know what 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 the book does for me is obviously it, it is physically powerful for me if I every day go around and speak to people about my beliefs and what I'm struggling for and what motivates me and stuff. And so this is where the book comes in. You know, this book is an expression of who I am and what I've been through and what I what I inspire to be. And so it allows me to reach thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people that I would never be able to reach, you know, in, in, in real time. Yeah. And so that's that's the value and the power and the impact of books. Yeah. You know, a long time ago, a woman asked me, you know, uh, what is your greatest achievement? Yeah. You know? And, you know, I thought about it for a minute, a second, you know, and I'm like, well, that, teach another man how to read and write. And that was heartfelt. I didn't have to, you know, it just came. It didn't come from the head. It came from the heart. Because I always remember a guy, his name was uh, Charles, and he used to call him Goldie. Yeah. And, yeah, since I grew up around my mom, I had recognized all the signs of hiding the fact that you couldn't read or write from her. So, he, you know, we lived on the tier together. And I saw these signs, and, you know, so one day I just kind of, you know, say, I want to ask you something, and I don't want you, you know. And he's like, yeah, man, what? I'm like, you can't read or write. And he kind of, like, dropped his eyes, and he's like, man, I don't want nobody to know that, you know, blah, 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 because, you know, image is everything. Yeah. You know? Especially in prison, you know, and I'm like, look, I can teach you how to read or write, but... You got to want it. You got to want it, you know, worse than anything you ever wanted. I said, you know, and if you want it, six months time, I can teach you to read. Yeah. And he wanted it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I told him any time, don't worry about it, you know, and like three o'clock in the morning, I'd be sitting in my cell reading or studying or and he, he was a few cells down, and he was like, you know, say, Albert, you up? I'm like, yeah, I'm up, you know, and he was like, I can't get this word, you know. And one of the tools I used was a dictionary, and, you know, at the bottom of the, each page in the dictionary, you have you have a speech voice, you know, yeah. as the higher word is spelled, as the highest sounds when you pronounce it. So I used that, you know, to teach him about how to pronounce words, you know, what constitutes a noun, a vowel, adjective or whatever, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but again, he wanted it. And one day he told me, he said, man, you open the world up to me. Yeah. You know, and he became an avaricious reader uh, himself, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's fantastic. I, yeah, I, it I, is. You know, I still that, get yeah. chills when, you know, all the other stuff we was doing, all the other activities we were involved with, I'd never stop to think about the danger of it and the repercussions and nothing, you know. But with this particular task, it was kind of like, yeah, when he said that to me, it was kind of like, it made me go back to my cell because you only get an hour out the cell every 24 hours. And it made, it go back, made me go back to my cell and sit on my bed and, and, and think, you know. Yeah, no. And that... It's got to be a good feeling to have with you. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's got to yeah, almost that's like a why weapon. I see. I think of all the things I've done, all the things I've been exposed to, all the things I've suffered from, 
I still think that was probably the greatest achievement. Yeah. Well, well Mr. Woodfox, um, thank you again for thank coming you. and joining us. Thank you for having us. You know. Our conversation continued a bit off mic at this point, and Mr. Woodfox shared his thoughts about the other Angola Three members, Robert King and Herman Wallace, and about the nature of their friendship. Uh, the audio is a little bit rough, but I thought it was worth including. So take a listen. You know, I mean, I've been asked, do I get tired? No, you know, because I remember, and Robin, Robin and I spent a lot of time on the tier together, you know, I think something like 17 years or something. Whereas Harmon and I was never allowed to live on the same tier, visit together, nothing. Mm-hmm. until the lawyers got involved. When we got some real lawyers, you know. Uh, yeah. Our lead attorneys, uh, who, has, who is now a good friend, name is George Kendall. And he's from a New York, a farm in New York. And, uh, you know, we used, to, we used to just have conversations about stuff, me and, and Robert, you know. And uh, it helped shape me, you know, a lot, which is, you know, I write about in the book. Had I not had the friendship and the comradeship of King and, and Harmon, my life could have been different. Yeah. You know, because these men allowed me to be afraid. They allowed me to cry. They allowed me to be confused. And they also allowed me to to uh, to be able to look in the mirror every morning and not be ashamed of what I was looking at. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, you know, Robin and I, of course, we lost Harmon three days after winning his freedom. And Robert, you know, uh, recently moved back to Louisiana from Austin. And so we spent, as a matter of fact, uh, scheduled to go by his house Sunday and yeah. spend the day. Yeah. That's great. So we try to, you know, and we travel together and we go to, you know, events and stuff. And, you know, I was telling, uh, we have some friends in England. And I was just, you know, talking with her on the phone, and I'm like, this is going to be so strange, you know, because I'm scheduled to go to England in May, a, a book-related uh, thing, and, yeah. you know, I won't be going with King. Uh-huh. So usually when we go to Europe, it's me and King, and then we've been to, like, France, England, Germany, Belgium, Holland. So we've kind of like, we do we go over there and do work for Amnesty. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, and surely the two of us, you know, and so his immediate council experiences we've had for the last 50 years or more is not there, you know. Yeah, that, that, that's hard. I mean, you that's yeah. a relationship that's kind of quantifiable, right? Like nobody yeah. can, that's a long-ass relationship. Yeah, you know, my mom used to tell me something when I was coming up, and, and, I, and I was, you know, there's a poem in, in the book called Echoes about, you know, my mom and... And she used to tell, always tell me, and I, did, I didn't understand what she meant to I was like in my early 40s. And she used to say, boy, friends are more important than family. And she said, your friends, you choose who your friends are. And they are a reflection of you. Yeah. Your family, you don't have no choice. Yeah. So you stuck with what you got. It's you know? true. <laughs> so, and, but I never understood that, you know. And, 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 you know, like I said, as you grow, I always was a small kid. And that, and to, to a fault, that's one of the things that, like, I go to school, 
and I'd get an assignment and I'd do it and then I'd become a distraction. Yeah. So I had all this this energy and all this, you know, intelligence without a focus point. You know, and that's what the Panthers did for me. The Panthers gave me a focus point. They spoke to me in a voice that you know, I always say, you know, the voice of the street was louder than the voice of my mom. Yeah. And the voice of the Black Panther Party was louder than the voice of the street. You know, but I think I kind of really began to understand life when I hit my early 40s. Yeah, it's kind of like honed it for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, really interesting. Oh, thank, thank, you. You. thank you again for, for doing this. I appreciate this right. so much. That was activist and author Albert Woodfox. His new book is entitled Solitary, My Story of Transformation and Hope. And that's our show. You've been listening to The Writer's Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch the show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This program, as well as WRBH's other interview programs, can be found on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.